open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll look at verses 1 through 10. And instead of my normal, sensitive, politically correct manner, we're going to take the gloves off today. Because Paul does. And the Holy Spirit inspired him to. Now, our text this morning is a continuation of what we covered last week about walking worthy or in the Christian living section of the handbook of the Christian faith. Remember, we noted that we had three chapters of what we believe and then three chapters of how we are to behave is what divides this uh, wonderful epistle into two parts. Now, we noted that when we come to Christ, there's not only a change in our eternal destiny, but there's a change in our thinking and actions while we're on the way there. And we are to guard from loss or injury or keep those things that happened to us the moment we got saved and the things the Lord continues to work on uh, for the duration of our lives. Now, we had three tips last week for keeping the change. And the first was God's word is our moral compass, not the world. Amen. That's still true today, yeah. right? And we also learned that speaking the truth protects us from all the companions of lying. And you can insert any particular sin in there because all sins have companions that travel with them or consequences. And we also were reminded that every behavioral expectation comes with divine enabling. God's not going to say stop stealing and not give you the power to stop stealing. He's not going to say put away lying and then not allow you the power to overcome that particular manifestation of sin. Now, Paul is going to stay the course, but he's going to hone in on something that the Ephesian church would resonate with in particular. And it was ways other cities and churches may not necessarily identify with, but the same is true in our day. However, the message would not be especially applicable to one church in our world today and not another because the situation Paul is going to address is a global problem and you'll see what I mean this morning. Now, Ephesus was home to one of the seven ancient wonders or wonders of the ancient world and it was a temple to the multi-breasted goddess Diana who was a goddess of fertility. And therefore, all types of sex-related rituals, including visiting temple prostitutes and orgies, were part of worshiping Diana. Now, while Paul, as we said, is going to stay the course, he's going to shift gears a little bit, and he's going to turn from the issue of exhorting believers to live in self-control to warning believers of the dangers of self-indulgence. And many of the things he addresses would be part of everyday life in Ephesus. They were culturally normal. They were accepted widely by the people in this city and in this carnal society, just as they are in the world today. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 to 21, Paul said, We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all the people you like. No. Be patient with who? Everyone. All. See that no one, say no one. No. no one renders evil for evil to anyone. But always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, when Paul offers a list like this, he is usually addressing things that need to be heard and heeded in every church, but may have a particular application in the church he is writing to. It may be a more uh, prevalent battle that this particular city or people group is fighting with over their, uh, against their flesh, I should say. So here's the question. Is sexual immorality and all of its companion vices rampant in our world today? Absolutely. So this is something we need to hear. And yet Christianity has the most explicit guidelines of all faith systems in the world regarding sexual activity. And that means that when we endeavor to keep the change regarding this culturally acceptable practice today, we're going to stand out and we're going to be noted as different 
from the world. And therefore, we don't use what the world says and thinks is our moral compass, as we said last week. We use exclusively and only God's word. Amen? Yes. Now, we're going to come in tight here for a minute. You ready? Yes. Is everybody here ready? Yes. Listen. If you think God's boundaries for sexual activity are outdated or too restrictive, tough. <laughs> too bad. And here's what we need to understand. God is not interested in your opinion or my opinion on moral behavior. He couldn't care less what we think. He doesn't care what our opinion is. He cares about our obedience to his directives. He's not sitting up in heaven and Michael says to him, man, Lord, they're not happy about these restrictions on sexual activity. And God's not saying, oh, gosh, maybe I better change them. No, he's saying, you know what? They need to follow them because I said so. And that's the only person in all the universe that can use as their qualifier for doing what they said, because I said so. If God said so, that's the way it is. Why? He's the king of kings who rides the clouds. He is the Lord of all creation. He names and numbers the stars. And listen, he measures the universe with the span of his hand. And if anyone thinks he's wrong or theirs idea, their ideas are better, they have no clue who he is. They don't understand his majesty. He's not interested in our opinion. He's interested in our obedience to what he has commanded. Now, I had to get that out of the way so we can move on. So... Listen, let me remind you of Psalm 19, 9 through 11. Psalm 19, 7 through 11 are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. 9 through 11 of that chapter, David says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they, the judgments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, are to be desired more than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is what? Warned. Warned. And in keeping them there is great what? Reward. reward. Now the Hebrew word for reward literally means the heel. It's the word that would be used for the end of a loaf of bread. Now, figuratively, it just means the end of anything or the outcome of anything or the consequence or the end result of anything. In other words, what David is saying by inspiration of the Spirit is that keeping the commands of God will result in having things better than fine gold and sweeter than the honeycomb in your life. Amen. And that includes things that go against the culture of the day. Which leads to our title this morning from these wonderful verses. Now, you may think you've heard this title before, but you haven't. So pay close attention because it's going to remind you how important every jot and tittle of Scripture is. Because if you add a letter here or there, you're going to mess the whole thing up. Now, our title this morning is, Your Blessed Life Now. Your Blessed Life Now. Now, anyone out there online that's among the church police, don't misread this. I'm not promoting Joel Osteen's book. That's not what this is all about. Because the fact is, you have to pay attention to L. Because if you remove L, said like a British person, L, H-E-L-L, -L, if you remove hell from your preaching, then you've lost the veracity and the wonder and the amazingness of Scripture and how God is so careful to warn us about what's coming and how to avoid it. That's what our text is actually about. Living your blessed life now. Because if you remove the L, all you're left with is what's best from this world. But we don't want what's best from the world. We want to be blessed by God. Now, blessed, B-L-E-S-T, is simply an archaic form, literary form of the word B-L-E-S-S-E-D. Same word, same meaning. You would find both in the dictionary. Now, we're going to talk about things that are better than having your best life now. Things that are better than riches. Amen. Yes. There are things better than riches. Amen. Things that are better than the delicacies that this world has to offer, which are what are pictured by fine gold and the honeycomb in Psalm 19. 
Now, what could be better than riches and delicacies? Hebrews 5.9 says, And having been perfected, he, Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation to all who what? Obey, Obey him. Now, I have to say I'm kind of amazed again, though I shouldn't be, at the providence of God and his uh, wonderful direction of what we uh, teach and uh, therefore believe here at the church because this is the perfect follow-up to Wednesday night's message if you happen to be here uh, for that. So, you ready for this? Yes. Stand and read with me, please. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and we'll learn about your blessed life now. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And, and Lord, that's our mission this morning, to find out what's acceptable to you, but Lord, also to find the identifiers so that we can have assurance that truly we are of the faith. And Lord, we pray through this uh, very powerful and direct text that you would speak to our hearts and where necessary call to repentance. Uh, those who are wayward or those who are following empty words, Lord. So we pray today that your will be done, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, our text begins with therefore, and it's a connector to what we mentioned two weeks ago about each of us receiving gifts in order to be bodybuilders and to walk worthy of our calling, to build one another up. Now, this is the second of five therefores in this section. And the word therefore means on account of. And th thus Paul is saying, on account of having the Holy Spirit and on account of gifts that are to be used to build each other up, he says in 425, put away lying. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. And on account of the fact that we have the Holy Spirit and gifts from God, 5.1 says, be imitators of God as dear children. And for the same reason, in 5.7, we're told not to be partakers with them, of dis, uh, partakers with disobedient people. 5.14 says, therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you what? Light. Then he says this in 5.17, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. These are the five therefores of this particular section of Ephesians. Don't lie because God doesn't. Amen. Don't partake of the actions of the disobedient. Stay awake through the whole sermon. Just be aware of what's going on around you. Don't be unwise. It's a pretty sound description of what it means to live your blessed life now and walk worthy. Now, we also need to note that the chapter begins, or the chapter breaks, rather, are human, even though the words in every chapter are divinely inspired. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. Amen. And all scriptures profitable, amen? amen? Including the tough stuff. Yes. Now, therefore is a continuation of thought from what Paul wrote in verse 32 directly, but that which uh, precedes it as well. But in verse 32 of chapter 4, he said, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, we can't get too far off course in our thinking regarding the, uh, what the Bible teaches and requires regarding forgiveness. We have to remember, forgiveness is not unconditional. Yes. That's right. Where'd you go? 
Forgiveness is not unconditional. That's universalism. We don't believe in universalism that everybody goes to heaven. Okay, is there lag time here? What's going on here this morning? Listen, in Luke 17, 3 and 4, Jesus said, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, act like he didn't do anything wrong and hug him unless he feels bad about what he did. That's what the world teaches today, right? If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall what? Is forgiveness conditional? According to this it is. If he repents, forgive him. Does God forgive the unrepentant today? No. Forgiveness is conditional. Amen? Now, forgive means to lay aside and leave alone. God does not forgive the unrepentant. You must change your mind, and therefore your life is going to change as well about the person of Christ. Are we to imitate God? Yes. Yes, that's what our chapter opens with here this morning. Now, many today go right to the forgive part and skip the rebuke part, and that's part of why the church is such a mess in these last days, and they ignore the conditional part of the forgiveness formula. Now, stay tuned here. I want you to listen all the way through. In Matthew 6, 14 to 15, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, did Jesus say, if your brother sins, and if he comes to you and says, repent, that you shall forgive him? Did Jesus say that? Yes, he did. So can this mean something different than that? No. No. no, it can't. That would be confusing, and God is not the author of confusion, and Jesus is God. Amen. Now, does it therefore mean that your forgiveness and salvation are dependent upon you forgiving other people? Yes. It can't be that, because if it's that, then your salvation is of works. It's not the free gift by the God, uh, grace of God. Now, what this means is that when someone sins against you and repents and you refuse to forgive them, well, you're not going to be living your blessed life now, that's for sure. Because the Holy Spirit will be grieved. Your fellowship with God will be impacted, as it will with others also. Now, again, salvation is not a free gift if you have to do anything to obtain it. Amen. Right? It's not a free gift if you have to do anything to obtain it, including forgiving others. But if the conditions under which God forgives other people have been met and you don't do what he does, there's going to be temporal consequences for you. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the forgiveness that allows us to be saved eternally. He's talking about your, uh, your, uh, experience, your lateral experiences with other people. You're going to live the life of an unforgiver. And I happen to like the fact that God not only forgave my sin and spared me the eternal consequences of my sin, he spared me in many of the temporal consequences of my sins as well. And yours. Amen. And yours. Amen. So, if you aren't willing to forgive others, you're going to travel through life with bitterness, yeah. Yeah. hatred, frustration, aggravation, all the consequences of an unforgiving person. Now, Paul closes verse 2 with a reminder that Christ offered himself for us as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. In other words, what Jesus did for you and me was pleasing to the Father, and that's how we should live too. That's how you imitate God, by living in the manner Jesus did, living to please the Father. Now, here's the first point about having your blessed life now. Life can only be fully blessed through living for God. Simplistic, but true. Life can only be fully blessed through living for God. Now, we need to remember in these last days that Christianity is an identity. It's not an activity. You're not here being a Christian on Sunday. You're a Christian on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and all throughout the course of the week. You're a Christian at all times and in every circumstance. Christianity isn't something we do. It's who we are. 
It's everything about us. It's how we think. It dictates what we do and even why we do it. Because all that we do, we do heartily as unto the Lord. Amen? Amen. Now think about all the things we have studied so far in this behavior section of this epistle and how they improve our lives because of our relationship with Christ. To live for God, we live without futility of mind. When we live for God, we live without darkened understanding. When we live for God, we live without spiritual blindness. When we live for God, we live without lewdness and deceitful lust. When we live for God, we're able to put away lying. We're able to put away stealing. We aren't ruled by, the, by anger and the resource of our words is completely cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and bitterness is put away as is evil speaking or being an evil speaking loudmouth. That's what we learned last week. I'm thinking the Christian life is a better life. I'm thinking it's a blessed life, aren't you? And instead of being any of those things, we are kind. We are tender-hearted. We are forgiving. And we will live the blessed life that all seem to be in pursuit of today. Now, Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 9, I just couldn't find a place to cut this off. We could have kept reading uh, throughout Deuteronomy 28, but I stopped at verse 9. I think you'll see why this is important for today. Now, this relates to the, the character of God, and God doesn't change. So when you come across something in the Old Testament written to Israel that is in relation to the character of God, it's applicable to the Christian today and not just national Israel. Now, it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle and offspring and of your flocks. Blessed, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated on September 14th. Oh. I didn't. Maybe that's not in there, but... Now, to be defeated before your face, they shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people. Or is the church holy people unto the Lord? Yes. Uh, special people, uh, the Lord says of us. Just as he has sworn to you. Here's the qualifier. What's the next word? If. if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Isn't that what Paul is saying here? Why? Because it's based on the nature and character of God. And therefore it's unchanging. As I said, there was much more for us to read about the blessings of obedience, but I think we could summarize them through what Solomon said in the Proverbs in 10.22. The blessings of the Lord make one rich, but he adds no sorrow to it. Now, life can only be fully blessed when we are living for God because the riches of God are better than the things that money can buy. They're better than fine gold. They're sweeter than the honeycomb. And the fact is, living for riches and the delicacies of this world and chasing after the lust of the flesh are the things that lead to sorrow. But following God, he adds no sorrow uh, with his blessings. Now, having told us that in light of all that God has done for us, the blessed life is one of being an imitator of God. Paul now says in verse 3 to 7, that being an imitator of God includes not being a violator of his word. Being an imitator of God includes not being a violator of his word and therefore his will. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to a city long steeped in sexual sins, much like our country and world is steeped in today. We also need to remember that what was written to Ephesus is applicable in every age to every Christian, and therefore it's applicable today, right? right? Now, Paul gives a list of things that are not fitting for the Christian to practice. And let me remind us again, our opinion 
about this list means less than nothing. So our opinion means nothing when we're comparing our opinion to the word and authority of God. Amen? Amen. Now the word fitting means proper or acceptable. And he starts with any sexual activity outside of marriage under the word fornication, which is the Greek word pornea, which obviously is from where we derive the word pornography. It speaks for itself. Sexual activity outside of the marriage boundaries, and the marriage boundaries are also defined as between one man and one woman. That's where it ends. Amen. One man, one woman who are married to each other. Wait a minute. One biological genetic man and one biological genetic female who are married to one another. Isn't it a shame we have to qualify things like that in these days? But it is true. Listen, he next mentions uncleanness. That's moral impurity. And then he throws in covetousness. Now, this isn't a departure from the context or the rest of the text because sexual purity is consistent with the 10th commandment of God, where Exodus 27 records it, where it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's what? Wife. Wife. Sexual purity is part of that commandment. Nor is male servant, female servant, nor is ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And then he mentions filthiness. Filthiness is just the word, the Greek word is the same word that would be translated as obscenities, or being a potty mouth. Now, Foolish talking is an interesting word. The, the actual meaning is buffoonery. What's buffoonery? Buffoonery is to uh, act out dirty things in a manner that is funny or comedic. Take something that is meant to be pure and make comedy out of it. Now, coarse jesting is telling dirty jokes. It's not fitting for Christians to tell dirty jokes or act out sexual innuendos that ought to be uh, that aren't proper for us as Christians to do. You guys still here? Okay. Now, he adds in verse 5 that these practices are the practices of the unsaved, not the saved. And he adds the idolater to the list because these things are idols when they are put above and before the commandments of God. Anything you put in front of God, as far as your personal priority, is an idol. Now in 1 John 3, 4-9, John says this, John the Beloved, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested, he being Jesus, to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides or stays in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil is sin from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Thank you, Jesus. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed, God's seed, remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. Is John teaching sinless perfection? Not at all. Perfectionism is an errant doctrine. You cannot become perfect in this life. That's why the Lord is working on us until the day of Jesus Christ. He begins a work and he works until we get home. And only when we see him will we be like him, John would later say. Now we need to dissect this a little bit. John is not saying nothing a Christian does is ever sin. He's not saying that nothing a Christian does is ever a sin, nor is he saying that Christians never sin. The phrase there he uses at the end, he who is born of God does not sin, that means to be content to continue. No Christian is content to continue in sin. No Christian can live in a known sinful manner, living against something that God has clearly prohibited in his word. Now remember, Paul had already warned about grieving the Holy Spirit, and all sin does that. Yes. All sin grieves the Holy Spirit. And Christians struggle with sin. Yes. Christians fall into sin. Yes. Christians even repeat some sins and fall into the same hole more than once. Yes. But, you knew that was coming, right? Yes. No born-again Christian will ever defend their right to sin. 
No born-again Christian will ever defend their right to sin. No born-again Christian will try and redefine sin. No born-again Christian will say something God says is a sin is actually not a sin. Because we are the people of the book, right? We live according to the word. Now, here's our point of application. Listen this morning. No sin, say no sin. No sin can ever make any Christian's life better. No sin can ever make any Christian's life better. Now, we could say no sin would make anyone's life better, and that would be true. But since the world has a different definition of better, it's only applicable to you and I, and it'd be pointless to do so. Because their better is best. Their better is not blessed. And we want to be blessed of God. Amen? Now, the world thinks getting to do whatever you want is better. No matter what God says. And those who think that are going to change their mind. When they stand before God at the great white throne judgment we studied last Wednesday. Now, I would go as far to say the less we sin, the more blessed we're going to be. That's kind of a no-brainer, right? Because God didn't give us a bunch of restrictions because he wants to make getting to heaven hard. He made getting to heaven easy. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He gave us these directives to keep us safe, to keep us happy and blessable and all the other things we enjoy exclusively as Christians. And Paul said in verse 6, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. That means words devoid of truth. Because those who teach and believe such things are not sins, the things he warned against, are disobedient and headed for God's wrath. And Paul says, don't be partakers with them. And this is underscored throughout the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 6, 17 to 18, we're told, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says who? Says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 1 Timothy 5.22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's what? Sins. Keep yourself pure. Revelation 18.4, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, speaking of Babylon, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Now, listen this morning. You ready? Any church or any teacher who defends lifestyles, sexual lifestyles, that the Bible forbids is to be shunned. Any teacher who teaches that sexual activities that the Bible has prohibited are actually acceptable within the Christian life and experience are not to be listened to. Their books are not to be purchased. Not one thing they say is to enter into your ears. Listen, they don't have a different interpretation of Scripture. They are rejecting the Scripture. Because there are some things that just don't need any interpretation. Like, do not lie with a man as you would with a woman, or vice versa. That's pretty clear. If you have any other questions about that, please see Pastor Dave after the service. (laughs) Now, listen this morning. The idea today that we have to like everything in the Bible for it to be true is from the devil. The idea that we have to like everything that the Bible says in order for it to be true is of the devil. That's subjectivism. And the Bible is not subjective. The Bible is objective. What it says, that's the way it is. If you don't like it, too bad. Do it anyway. You ever feel like not going to work? You ever feel like that two days in a row? Three? Four? Ten years? Yeah. But we need to do it anyway, right? So it's not a concept that's foreign to us that we have to do things we may not necessarily want to do or like to do because the fact is we need to approach the Bible with this one thing in mind. If God said it, that settles it. There's nothing to debate. You don't have to like it, agree with it, or anything else. And it doesn't matter that it's not culturally sensitive or politically correct or any of these other nonsensical things. If God said it, that's just the way it is. And he doesn't care. If we wish something else was true. He's God. He's not us. 
He is the authority over all creation. He's perfect and he's always right. Amen. And let me just add this. This is his world. Not yours. This is his dirt cloud. He made it and everything on it. And he said, here's how it's going to be. So do what I say and your life will be blessed. Believe on my son and it's going to be blessed for a very long time. Amen. Now, he's willing to save anyone. But everyone he saves, he sanctifies. He sets them apart from what they used to be and he changes their thinking so it lines up with his word and will. Now Jude, the Lord's half-brother, says these are grumblers in 16 to 19 of the one chapter that makes up Jude. Complainers walking according to their own lusts and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people, telling people what they want to hear to gain advantage. But you, beloved... Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own what? Ungodly, Ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having what? The Spirit. The spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, it's because you're not saved. So there are people that we're being warned about who teach sensuality or uh, the things that people want to hear in a sexual nature, who cause divisions because they don't have the Holy Spirit and thus nothing they say can be inspired. Now, when a Christian fails in any of these areas, and they do, when a Christian fails in any of these things, and Christians do, the Holy Spirit is grieved. And if the Holy Spirit is in you and the Holy Spirit is grieved, guess who else is grieved? You. You cannot stay with a sense of contentment when there's repeated and practiced sin in your life. It's inconsistent with what God has done in making you a new creation, is what John the Beloved was saying. Now, when someone says they are a Christian and defends the right to do things God has forbidden, that person, according to Jude, does not have the Holy Spirit. And those without the Holy Spirit are not saved. Now, if you want to have your blessed life now, remember, no Christian's life was ever made better by any sin. As a matter of fact, the unrepentant practice or defense of or approval of sin says something about the current destination of your soul. Now, let me just say this. I didn't say that. God did. That's not my opinion. That's what God said through the Apostle Paul in verse 5. For this you know that no, this was common teaching, in other words. You know that no fornicator, people have sex outside of marriage unrepentantly and continually, unclean person or covetous man is, who is an idolater has any inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. That's pretty clear, right? If you don't have an inheritance, which the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that future inheritance, Ephesians 1.13, and you instead defend and protect and approve of fornicating, being an unclean person, uh, an immoral person, constantly a moral person, and uh, coveting things that you shouldn't, which is idolatry, there's no inheritance in the kingdom of God because the Spirit is absent. So, verses 8 through 10. Paul says something I think we need to read carefully. He says, you were once darkness. He doesn't say you were once in darkness. He says you were darkness. And we were. Amen. But now you not are in light. Now you are light in the Lord. Now in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11, we find 9 through 11, we find how this whole progression works. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now, if he's going to say something like that, he better explain what unrighteousness is. Don't you think? Yes. And he does. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But boy, am I glad he kept writing. And such, next word, were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the 
Spirit of our God. Now, washed and sanctified is the same thing as being light. Since we are light in the Lord, we should live or walk as children of light in the fruit of the Spirit that is listed in Galatians 5. 22 to 24, Galatians told us, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Next one. Self-control against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, we noted when we studied Galatians that fruit is singular. It's singular for a reason. Because it's not like the gifts of the Spirit, which God distributes individually as he wills. And some have one gift and some have another. The fruit of the Spirit is what we all have. And we all have all the fruits of the Spirit. It is something that God has given to all of us via our salvation and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul had just described the life of those who are in darkness or who are darkness. And he says the fruit of the life of those who are light is the opposite of those things. They have uh, lives filled with goodness and righteousness and truth. And as light, we are to live like we are light. Now, at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, there was a nighttime ceremony called the Illumination of the Temple. And it took place in the temple treasury where there would be four huge golden candelabra with torches on top. And some who had, uh, were eyewitnesses, historians, said that these candelabras were as tall as the walls of the temple. And then on top were these uh, great bowls holding an estimated 65 liters of olive oil each with a ladder ascending up each candelabra where a young priest would go up and fill it with oil and light the protruding wicks. And eyewitnesses of these events said the flames would leap from these torches and would illuminate not only the temple, but the whole city of Jerusalem. It was after this ceremony in the same temple treasury on the very next day with the charred torches still in place in the candelabras that Jesus lifted his voice above the crowd and said, as John 8, 12 records, I am the light of the world. Now, interesting that he would say in the Sermon on the Mount in 514 to 16, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill, remember Jerusalem's on a hill, cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works resulting in what? Glorifying, Glorifying your Father who is in heaven. Now, Donald Gray Barnhouse, a wonderful commentator, said uh, in, in relation to these two proclamations that Jesus is the light of the world and we are the light of the world, he penned it like this. When Christ was in the world, he was like the shining sun. Now, when the sun sets, the moon comes up. The moon is a picture of believers, the church. The church shines, but not with its own light. It shines with reflected light. At times, the church has been a full moon, dazzling the world with almost daylight time. And those were times of great enlightenment, like in the days of Paul and Luther and Wesley. At other times, the church has only been a thumbnail moon. And in those days, very little light shone on the earth. But whether the church is full or a thumbnail moon, whether waxing or waning, it reflects the light of Christ. Our light does not originate with us. Amen. The only way we can be the light of the world is if we reflect Christ. Amen. The only way we can reflect Christ is to live like him and to imitate him. Most of you have heard me share this story, and I thought it fitting this morning, of a little girl who was riding home with her mom after church. And it was obvious to the mom that her daughter was troubled. So she asked her, what's wrong, honey? She said, well, my Sunday school teacher said something is very confusing. She said, really? What'd she say? She said, well, God is bigger than us. She said, yeah, he is. And she said, well, she also said God is in us. And she said, well, yeah, he is. And she said, well, if God is bigger than us and God is in us, wouldn't he show through? The answer? Absolutely. If he's in us, he's going to show through. Now, 
Here's our closer on having your blessed life now, and it's a simple solution to a complicated truth. And it's just this. The less we are like the world, the more blessed our lives will be. Amen. Just that simple. The less we are like the world, the more blessed our lives will be. Now, we may not have everything some people have. How many here could use more money? The rest of you liars, get your hands up. We could all use more money, right? I don't think anybody's satisfied. Well, maybe somebody here is. I don't know. But I don't think any of us are like, oh, I have everything that I would like to have in life. And listen, enjoying life is not a sin. Amen. Right? Amen. Abraham was blessed. David was blessed. Solomon was blessed. God has no problem with blessing his people materially. But that doesn't mean we're all going to be blessed in the manner that some teach today. We may not have everything some people have. We may even struggle with the same things other people struggle with in life who don't know the Lord. Making ends meet. Things happening at the most inopportune moments. Anybody ever have a washing machine break at the worst possible time? Or a flat tire on the way to a job interview? You know, those kind of blessings in life. We've all had those things, right? But then we add to that as a Christian, we have trials and tribulations because of what we believe. But here's what we need to remember. What we have now is nothing like what we're going to have forever. Amen. So why would we spend our days focused on getting things now when we're going to have an eternal habitation forever that does not fade away? Amen. Now think about this. No billionaire on their deathbed wishes they had more money. No movie star or sports star on their deathbed wishes they had more fame. No, in light of our text this morning, promiscuous person on their deathbed wishes for one more illicit rendezvous. They all wish for things that are ours the moment we are born again. Things money can't buy. Peace that guards the heart and mind. Time, the Lord numbers our days, right? Peace and joy and love, Christian attributes that we all share and are the fruits of the Spirit. And thus John would say in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world. Is that a suggestion or a command? Amen. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who, what? Does the will of God abides forever. Now listen, your best life isn't this one. But you can have a blessed life. Because God does bless his children. And that's only possible through being dedicated to the Lord, which includes turning from sins. It can't make your life better anyway. And it includes putting the Lord as our top priority in life. And the one measure we should all use to have a blessed life is to not love the world that's passing away. Because it is only those who do the will of God that will abide forever with him. God wants us to live blessed lives. Amen. He wants to bless us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, Psalm 103 would say. And we want the benefits of knowing God. Amen? Amen. And we don't want to hinder them. We don't want to quench them. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit in us. Listen, your sin debt, if you're a born-again believer, has been fully paid. And when you Amen. blow it, when you mess up, through Christ you can get up. Amen. And you don't have to stay down. Amen? Amen? We all stumble in many things, James has told us. So listen, what would really and should really make us feel blessed this morning is this. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. He's coming to get us. And listen, I don't think, and I don't want, I don't think anyone would want to, but I don't want anyone to miss it either. Listen, there's so much garbage being taught out there today. And, you know, I was thinking this morning, this just kind of occurred to me as I was going through my Sunday, Sunday morning routine. I was thinking about, you know, our soldiers in Afghanistan and those around the world risking their lives. And it occurred to me, it just popped in my head, the most dangerous job on the planet is to be a pastor. You know why? Because theirs is a greater condemnation. That's why Paul would say, let not many of you become teachers. Because you start messing with this book and you're in trouble. 
you start redefining sin and you're in trouble. You start teaching things that are unacceptable to God are actually acceptable for you and you're in trouble. And you will give an account to the most high God for what you taught the people that sat under your teaching. And listen, when I stand before God and give an account for what I've done with my life, I want to be able to say, we taught your book. Every word of it, even the stuff we didn't like, even the stuff that was hard, we taught it anyway, and we tried to do it as best we could. Because these are the words of El Elyon, God Most High. These are the words of El Shaddai, God Almighty. These are the words of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they are second to none. And they are not subject to any human interpretation or opinion. They are the authority over all creation. And therefore, I'm thinking we do what he says. Amen? Bow your heads, please. And Father, we are thankful that your word uh, at times will pause from the uh, warm and careful instruction and take the gloves off and get in our faces a bit and remind us of what is actually true and factual, especially in an age where there are so many false teachers and so much deception. We thank you that you do love us and you do bless us and you do have our needs in mind and you told us not to worry about things because you're going to take care of us. You even made the parallel that if you know about a sparrow that falls to the ground, how much more important are we to you than many sparrows? So Lord, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that you care about us. We're thankful that uh, you know the numbers of the hairs on our head. You know, uh, or you keep our tears in your bottle. Uh, Lord, you know the number of our days. Your watchful eye is upon us constantly. You neither sleep nor slumber. We're thankful, Lord, that you care about us in such a manner. We're thankful most of all that you loved us enough to save us while we were yet sinners.